Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Dude Therapist. I am so excited to have this esteemed author, Daniel Pink, on today's episode. He is the author of best-selling books about business, work, creativity, and behavior. His books include When, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing, To Sell is Human, The Surprising Truth About Moving Others, Drive, The Surprising Truth About What Motivates Us, and A Whole New Mind, Why Right-Brainers Will Rule the Future. And we're having him on talking about his newest book, The Power of Regret, How Looking Backwards Moves Us Forward. Now, Daniel Pink was host and co-executive producer of Crowd Control, a television series about human behavior on the National Geographic channel that aired in more than 100 countries. He has appeared frequently on NPR, PBS, ABC, CNN, and other TV and radio networks in the U.S. and abroad. His 2020 masterclass on sales and persuasion is one of the most popular courses on the platform. Before venturing out on his own 20 years ago, Dan worked in several positions in politics and government, including serving the 1995 to 1997 as chief chief speechwriter to Vice President Al Gore. You know, there's so much about him that is inspiring, motivating, and don't forget, he has a wife, lives in Washington, D.C., parents of two recent college graduates and a college freshman, someone who's a human, who's writing books for humans, about humans, inspiring humans every day. That's why we had to have him on, because I know he's inspired me and moved me in his research, his writing, and his expertise, and today's episode does not fail. So I hope you enjoy. So let's jump right into it on today's episode on The Power of Regret. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Dude Therapist. I'm so honored to have an an amazing author, um, someone who has written unbelievable books that have changed the world of uh, not just self-help books, but they are research-based with so much insight and knowledge. We have Daniel Pink here. Can you introduce yourself quickly to the listeners uh, just so they get a little taste of who you are from your words, not from the bio? Okay, so uh, my name is uh, Daniel Pink. I'm a writer. I live in Washington, D.C. I have written seven books, the latest of which is called The Power of Regret, How Looking Backward Moves Us Forward. And I'm excited to be on The Dude Therapist. (laughs) Thanks. Um, My first question really is how did, you know, this is a very eye-opening concept that as a therapist, we talk about regret all the time. And the could-haves, the should-haves, all those things that you talk about so beautifully in your book. But what inspired you to write this book on this topic now? Well, I think it's a good question about the word now. I think that's actually telling. Um, You know, I don't think that I would have written. I've been writing books for 20 years. I'm in my 50s now. I would not have written this book in my 30s. I don't think I had enough mileage on me. I didn't think I had enough life experience to really look back. And so the catalyst, I think, was, well, well, the direct catalyst was one of my kids graduated from college. And I sort of had a you know, one of those moments when you're marking time and both looking backward and looking forward. Um, but the other thing is that I, when I found myself talking, thinking about my regrets and talking about my regrets, I wanted to make sense of them. And I found people responding to this topic in a way that surprised me. They were really engaged and leaning in. And that went against, I think, the conventional view of regret as something that it's totally aversive, something that everybody wants to avoid. 
Yeah, and we'll, we'll talk about that later. But just to start off, can you define from the research that you've done? Um, I know you talk about that, I think, in Chapter 2, really, the definition of what regret is. But can you, from your perspective and, the, and all the things and the people that you've spoken to, what your thought process and what regret actually means? Yeah, well, I mean, the main thing to understand is that regret is regret is an emotion, and it's an emotion that's negative. It's an emotion that makes us feel bad. Um, when we experience regret, we feel worse than before we were experiencing regret. So that's that's a really important <laughs> aspect of it. Uh, and it emerges because we look backward and imagine it, 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 we, 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 it's a combination of time travel and storytelling. So what we do is we look backward on our life and we imagine a counterfactual set of circumstances. So we say, what w- if only I hadn't taken that decision or if, if only I hadn't taken that action or if only I, I had taken that action, if only I had made that decision, if only I made a different decision. And then we get back in our time machine and zoom forward and imagine that the, the, our present would be reconfigured because of those choices in the past. So it's a negative emotion that comes from when we look backward and wish we had done something differently or done different things. Yeah. You know, I'm surprised about the book. You didn't even touch on back to the future as like a reference at all to like any of the things that you could have used, but I was like waiting for it. I'm like, Oh my gosh, it's like so exciting. No, no, too, too obvious a movie, man. Too obvious. Yeah. <laughs> um, right. Every movie was written. Like if only I can go back and change this one moment and my whole future would yeah. change. Um, yeah. and, and right from the beginning, you said something really shocking that I really loved that, um, when, when someone says, Oh, I've never had regrets, you call them like acting or actors in some way or yeah. another. Um, what, what do you deal? How do like, how does someone deal with that when you say, Oh no, no, I'm good. I have no regrets. I have a full life. Is that really true? And 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 is that a reality thought process? Well, they're making two claims there when they say I have I have a no regrets and I have a full life. You could very well have a full life, but you definitely have regrets. Uh, the two are not mutually exclusive. And so, I mean, what we know is that is that regret is one of the most. I mean, you know, this as a therapist, but what what we know from a rich body of science is that. Regret is one of the most common emotions that human beings experience. It is arguably the most common negative emotion that people experience. We have research on this starting from the 1980s, um, looking at everything, using methodologies from uh, recording people's conversations and coding the emotions that are expressed there all the way to modern brain scans. And what we find, what these scientists have found literally now for almost 40 years, is that everybody has regrets. Uh, the only people who don't have regrets are five-year-olds because their brains haven't developed enough because of what I was describing before inc- requires incredible cognitive dexterity. Uh, people with certain kinds of brain lesions um, in the orbital frontal cortex, certain kinds of neurodegenerative diseases, and soci- sociopaths. Now, everybody else has regrets. Uh, and so I think the really the, the, the question here is that if something that is – we've already established that it's aversive, that it's unpleasant, and yet it's ubiquitous – so what's going on? What's the point? Uh, why is something that's so ubiquitous so so unpleasant? And the answer is because it's useful if we deal with it right. And that's the big if is we don't always deal with it right. Um, and in a, in a way, we have been re- regret has gotten a, a an incredibly bad reputation and and be, be, in part because we don't know how to deal with it right. Yeah, and, and I think there was a movement a couple of years ago, a couple probably between five and ten years ago, that concept of like YOLO. Like you only live once, so like do everything so you don't live without any regret. And from your book, is that something that is a productive thought process or is it really Yes not and no. 
Yes and no. It depends. All right. So, so when we have to, th- so let's go back to this idea that our brains can, tra- that our minds and brains can time travel. So, um, a lot of people, when they look, a lot of people, so when we look backward, everybody has regrets. There's no question about it. Everybody has regrets. And the people who don't have regrets looking backward are deluding themselves. Uh, it doesn't mean that regrets are necessarily debilitating. It doesn't mean that if you have regrets, you think your current life is miserable. You can love your current life and still have regrets. Uh, in fact, that's, I think that's true for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Now, so, so backward-looking regret, um, when people say they have no regrets looking backward, is a form of self-delusion. There's no question about that. Now, what you're describing, though, is really forward-thinking regret, which is basically how do you – you, should you live your life to, and to reduce regrets or eliminate regrets? And that's actually not terrible guidance in some ways, uh, but you have to do it correctly. And so the thing is, is that if you try to anticipate your regrets, there, there, there are two big downsides when you try to anticipate your regrets. One is that sometimes we um, are actually too risk averse um, when we do that. So um, because, because certain kinds of regret are so salient, we avoid, say, switching an answer on a multiple choice test, even though the evidence is overwhelming that you should switch your answer. But because we anticipate regretting mo- switching from a right answer to a wrong answer more than sticking with the wrong answer, we, we make a wrong decision. The second thing is that when you say, let's go back to YOLO, all right? So if you YOLO every decision you make, you're going to be miserable. All right. And so there is, again, this is as sturdy a finding as you can find in the entire field of, of social psychology, the difference between maximizers and satisficers. Maximizers try to get make the best decision in every single circumstance. Um, and so so if you're a YOLO, if you look YOLO everything, OK, what hamburger, what kind of hamburger, what should I have for dinner tonight? Well, should I have this hamburger or that hamburger? No, maybe I shouldn't have hamburger. You only live once. Maybe I should have this. All right. You'll go nuts. All right. Maximizers tend to be um, tend to be miserable. Uh, what you should should be doing is you should be YOLOing or maximizing certain things. And we have a good sense of what those certain certain things are from other research and regret. So what you should be doing when we anticipate our future regrets is really maximizing to avoid a very small number of kinds of regret and just basically chilling out on everything else. You know, and, and when you talk about the anticipatory regret, the thing that I think of is that when I when I, I don't hear regret, I hear anxiety. Is that interchangeable in in the research or the I don't know. That's process? an interesting question. That's an interesting question because anxiety has, I mean, as you know, anxiety has a particular meaning in medicine and mental health, and regret regrets that- meaning is yeah, exactly. So so um, so it's so it's possible that you know um, um, you know if we if we if we want to medicalize this a little bit or use more medical terms and here I, I don't I don't want to go too far but we can say like when you look backward and feel bad it's 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 akin to depression and yeah. when you look forward and are agonized it's a, it's akin to anxiety. Yeah. But I'm not a doctor and I'm not you know talking about medicine I'm talking about you know these kinds of um, these kinds of I'm talking about this particular emotion but you're right that that there is a form of that maximizing every decision is a it can create forms of anxiousness there's no question and because I recently, you, can't, you can't maximize everything yeah exactly I recently read that study I was listening to a podcast with Adam Grant on it and I recently was reading that study with the maximizer satisficers and such an amazing um, uh, tool to think about how you utilize that um, and I use a lot in, in my practice to teach people for their relationships specifically like the idea of how much are you trying to maximize the relationship to the point where 
nothing's ever good enough and you're just chronically sick. Right, right. Right, versus right, it being right, satisfied right. with the boxes you check and then being happy and, and, and content. Um, you know, right. I find it interesting you talk about in the beginning of that um, the impact of the importance of negative emotions. I don't think people talk about that very often because a negative emotion usually people talk about is anger, right? So why do we want to utilize anger? So how did you grapple with that idea of people's assumptions about negative emotions and thinking about, hey, we really should utilize this one specifically versus the other ones? Is there a distinction between? Well, I mean, I mean, here's the thing. Other negative emotions are useful, too. Um, you know, we have negative emotions for a reason. Uh, and I, I think the big problem is, is that no one ever teaches us how to deal with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, no, no one ever teaches us how to think about them and no one ever reaches, teaches us how to, how to deal with them. So let's just, let's go to the first part about just thinking about them. Um, you know, I, what the, again, there's, we have 70 years of science on this, that positive emotions are good. We should have positive emotions. Positive emotions make life worth living. We should have more positive emotions than negative emotions. But the idea that we should have only positive emotions is, is ludicrous yeah. uh, because negative emotions are functional. So imagine a world – imagine if you didn't have the negative emotion of fear, you know, and your house caught on fire. Oh, no, I don't have any fear. All right, you're dead. All right. Uh, you know, um, I mean, I mean, you know, um, I mean, anger done right is a useful can be a useful emotion. It's a signal. It, it could be that there's an injustice out there. Mm-hmm. It could be that you're not being treated fairly. Um, even something that's even more corrosive and has, I think has fewer upsides, even something like envy is it can be a useful emotion on in done in limited in limited circumstances. Mm-hmm. Uh, think about something like grief. All right. Grief is a horrible negative emotion. Do you want to should we extinguish grief from our our repertoire? No, because the reason we grieve is that we, is, is because we love. So, again, it's how we think about negative emotions. You need some. They're functional. Now, that leads to the second point, which is that not only do we not think about them right, but we're completely clueless about how to deal with them. And so what happens is, is that many of us get uh, m- many, many people. And I think it's safe to say that many people who are dudes uh, go to the strategy of ignoring. They mm-hmm. put their fingers in their ears and say, oh, no, emotions aren't real, especially negative emotions. Nope, nope, nope. I'm going to block it out. Ignore it, ignore it, ignore it. And then other people, um, if they can't do that or they get captured by it, end up wallowing in these negative emotions. And that's really bad, too. You know, it's mm-hmm. a therapist. You don't want people ruminating. And so the question is, do we don't, you know, if we don't ignore our negative emotions, we shouldn't ignore our negative emotions and we shouldn't wallow in them. So what should we do? Mm-hmm. We should think about them. We should use them as signals. We should use them as information. We should use them as data. We should confront them. And so that's why this no regrets philosophy where I look back, I don't have any regrets looking backward. That's bullshit. I mean, it's it is it is um, it is performed courage. Um, But real courage is looking your regrets in the eye and doing something about them. Yeah, and I, and I love that perspective. I want to jump in about the uh, the distinctions you make, the if onlys and the at leasts. Just to clarify, if is the at leasts really the idea that at least I tried, or mm. is that what is that what it, I, I know? I've read the book. That's an not, interesting. I'm, yeah, no, that's an interesting. That's a really interesting question. That's a really good way to look at it. Um, a little bit. Let me explain. Um, I, I think what, what, what you're what you're that particular kind of at least is. That to me is more about it's the end of your book when you talk about the silver lining of things. Is it, at least I have. Yeah. Energy, well. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Yeah. So. 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 So let's. So let's. Let's start at a. Let's start at a high level. So regret is a form of counterfactual thinking. That is, we can conjure a world that runs counter to the actual facts. And so, in general, there are two broad kinds of counterfactual thinking. There is a so-called upward counterfactual, you where you imagine how things could have been better, and that's an if only. Um, if only I had married um, John, not. 
Eduardo, everything would be good. All right. Uh, if only I had studied um, botany instead of um, comparative literature, everything would be good. So that's an that's an if only. Now here's the thing: if onlys that upward counterfactual make us feel bad. Yeah. There's no question about that. But done right, they can help us do better. All right. Now there's another kind of counterfactual: a downward counterfactual, where you imagine how things could have been worse. So you say. Um, uh, I shouldn't have married that idiot, but at least I have these two great kids. Yeah. Um, I shouldn't have taken that job, but at least I met my best friend, Marsha. Yeah. Um, that's a downward counterfactual. And so downward counterfactuals make us feel better, but they don't make us do better. Yeah. And feeling better is okay sometimes. Uh, you know, and the two are not necessarily mutually exclusive, but it's just two, two different ways that are two different ways that our brains work. If onlys help us improve, and at least are in some ways part of our psychological immune system. They help us feel a little bit better. And that's okay uh, sometimes, but um, they don't help us do better. And is there, um, you know, we're jumping around over here, but I'm so excited about it because I love, I love your writing and your book is, and your books are amazing. The at least, is that, a del- is that more of like a delusional like detracting or not wanting no. to focus on the things? Or is it really an active process of like, really focusing on the goodness that comes out of every experience, even though it might not be the quote unquote perfect or amazing experience. And it could be hard, but there's still, at least there's something good. At some level, that's a choice of the individual. That is, it's not something that is, it's not something that is inevitable or organic or uncontrollable. And so now what you don't want to do, you can over at least things too. Then you become, then you be, then you, then that's a, that's a, that's a form of delusion. But, um, and so the other thing, though, is that is that and, and this gets into some of the complex underlying architecture of regret is that at least tend to be better for regrets of action rather mm. than inaction. Yeah. I took this job. I shouldn't have taken that job. But at least I met my best friend. I don't know who I said, George or Marsha or whoever. OK, Marsha. All right. So I uh, so um, so that's a regret. That's a regret of action. Um, the majority of regrets are regrets of inaction. And so it's harder to at least a regret of inaction. Um, you know, I should have started a business. You know, uh, uh, you know, it's harder to it's harder to uh, mm. if, if only I'd started a business, I'd be happier and more fulfilled yeah. in my career. I hear that. Um, it's harder to not impossible, but it's harder to at least those. And, you know, the most surprising thing that I was, when I was reading the research was the studies from the 1940s in these surveys compared to today. And there being that top three of the most regrets. And you, you broke them down into four core regrets of, uh, in your book. Um, were you surprised? What was the most surprising um, statistic that you got, or assumption that you came into looking into regrets that maybe shifted while doing the research and writing the book? Um, I, I think the biggest surprise was the universality of these regrets because mm-hmm. I did two, as you mentioned, I did two big pieces of research. One of them yeah. was a, a large public opinion survey, the American Regret Project, which looked at a huge sample of Americans uh, over uh, nearly forty five hundred, and um, and then I also did a, a – we collected regrets, a qualitative survey from around the world. And in many ways, what I was looking for in both of those was to see how regret differed from person to person, place to place. So do men have different regrets than women? Do um, people of color have different regrets than white people? Do Americans have different regrets than people in Asia? And what I found is that there was a remarkable similar. There's much, there's much less difference and much more similarity than I ever would have expected. 
to that me, was the, the biggest surprise. The number one thing was the the work being the the, the education part. Sorry, being a, a, such a high regret um, in the statistics. I would assume that yeah. relationships would be or or. Well, it, it, it depends. Like early on, when scholars looked at that, there was actually in some ways a misread. The education regrets took over. It was a, sort of a misread of. It was basically bad, bad methodology because mm-hmm. they did a lot of the a lot of the work early work that said education is people's top regret was done on college campuses of college students, yeah. rather than from the whole the the wider sample of right exactly. So not surprisingly, education was more salient there. But you see you see education as a as a pretty significant regret out there. But what I but as you know from the book, I have a different argument. What I'm arguing is that the the surface domains of people's life that is career education. Mm-hmm health, finance, those matter less than what's going on underneath, that underneath, regardless of the area of your life, there are four core regrets that I think are more meaningful and more significant and more revealing. Can you talk about those for a second? Sure. So one of them is what I call foundation regrets. Foundation regrets are if only I'd taken the chance. I'm sorry, foundation regrets are if only I'd done the work. Foundation regrets are if only I'd done the work. And these are regrets about uh, people who, again, they made bad health decisions, and so their 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 present is is a lot more wobbly than it should be. They may they spent too much and saved too little, so their present is more wobbly than it should be. They didn't work hard enough in school, so their present is more wobbly than it should be. So mm-hmm. it's really about a wobbly, unstable present. So that's foundation regrets. Boldness regrets are if only I had taken the chance. And these are regrets where people are at, at a juncture. And again, it doesn't matter whether it's their career, their education, their romantic life, whatever. They're at a juncture. They can play it safe or they can take the risk. And when they don't take the risk, they often, not always, but more than you'd think, regret not taking the chance. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's boldness regrets. Now, let me quickly interject something that you asked earlier, which is that you have plenty of people who who took a risk. Let's say they tried to start a business and it failed. And they'll report like some, some of them will report, oh, my God, I regret having started that business. But a lot of them, but many of them do not. Many of them say, I took the risk and I failed. But to your earlier point, at least I tried. So it wasn't so much the outcome. It was simply the, the, the importance of just stepping up in that moment. Mm-hmm. So we've got foundation. We've got boldness. We've got moral regrets or if only I had done the right thing. So these are regrets about bullying and, and marital infidelity and a host of other transgressions. And then finally, we have connection regrets, which are if only I had reached out. And these are about relationships that were intact or should have been intact that come apart often very slowly and, you know, without any kind of catalyst and people don't reach out and yeah. then they end up regretting it. That was that drift versus uh, – I forgot the other term you used. The drift versus the rift, yeah. Yeah. And, and to me, the, the, moral, the moral foundational core was something that I – sorry, the moral – uh, core belief of uh, regrets to me was the most interesting. Um, hmm. And so, uh, for me, as I'm an Orthodox Jew, right? And there's a lot of belief uh-huh. systems in that and all that cool stuff. But I love that you quoted Jonathan Haidt because I love that book, Righteous Mind, and the things that you tied in there. I thought it was so interesting to see that that was the lowest statistical thing, but the most intense yeah. and most intense of of, of emotion. Yeah, that's a great, that's a good observation. And I, and I think it's pretty interesting because I think that, and I don't know why, um, but I, I think it could be because like in, if, if I don't start a business, if I say, oh, if only I'd started a business rather than stayed in this lackluster job, in some way, the, the person who's harmed the most is me. But if I cheat on my spouse, there's an, there's external harm. Mm-hmm. If I 
bully somebody, there's external harm. And so I think that that might be why those things are more painful, which says something about our says something about our morality. Yeah. It says something about our morality. Also, but I, mean, I don't think it's as common you, as well to have that be a regret because how often are we doing that compared to a lack of action in, in life or, or things? Well, that that's a great point to. too. That's a great point too, because the list of inactions is the universe of inactions is infinite, right? Yeah. Um, and the list of actions is finite by its very nature. And so they're going to be, they're going to be fewer, they're going to be fewer of those. But I mean, I think you make a point about on the morality. I mean, you make an interesting point about religion, um, in in the sense that one of the things that I observe is that religious traditions do a better job of dealing with negative emotions than many secular than the secular society often does. So, oh, well, if you think about think about Catholic Catholicism, I mean, there's there's confession and repentance. Yeah. I mean, at least there's a mechanism for dealing with that. Yeah. Think about Judaism. There's you've got a whole day devoted to atoning for your sins. Yeah. All right. That's it's like we're going to carve out an entire day. You're not going to do anything. Except reflect and atone on your transgressions. That's that's a, that's a mechanism for dealing with things. Even if you look at sort of quasi-religious traditions, so look at Alcoholics Anonymous or something like that, that has a systematic process. Mm-hmm. One of the things about Alcoholics Anonymous, as a you know, and again, that's it's more complicated because I don't consider alcoholism, I don't consider alcohol addiction a moral transgression. I consider it. An illness, yeah. um, and yet Alcoholics Anonymous has a methodology for essentially apologizing to people. Mm-hmm. Basically, big on on disclosure and confrontation and acknowledging it rather than hiding from it, but also big on going to the people whom you've hurt and actually trying to make amends. Yeah, um, and That's so 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 more broadly in secular society, um, we don't have a way to do that. What we've been what we what we have been fed is this, you know endless buffet of positivity all the time. And that is just not a healthy diet for living. And you even talk about that with the idea. I'm a, I'm very against the whole new year's resolution thing um, of like every year, like here's what I'm going to do better. Like here's what I'm going to do um, and make these huge assumptions and huge big promises. You, you shift it just a, a little bit to do like a no, a regret of what I'm not going to do, what I'm going to do differently than what I didn't do last year. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, and I like not, that I'm thought not, process yeah. better. Yeah, I mean, New Year's resolutions. We have a lot. There's a lot of pretty interesting work on New Year's resolutions, and they're 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 you know they can be they can be very useful because yeah. New Year's resolutions, you know, and again, religious traditions have this as well. Um, you know, but secular society has this too. This idea of temporal landmarks, yeah. where there's certain dates in the calendar that stand out, like physical landmarks stand out in space, and what happens to us. Mental, uh, cognitively, mentally, emotionally, is that we sort of open up a fresh chapter on ourselves during those moments. And that can be healthy. And now, again, what you don't want to me, it's like what you don't want is 17 New Year's resolutions. I think there's one, you know, one New Year's resolution that's informed by some of your regrets from the previous year and some kind of plan of action for implementing it tends to be pretty. That's what I loved about that little little ad you had. Um, And uh, something that I was thinking about reading the book was uh, you talk about comparison being a core part of regret. Have you seen um, from the research or even your perspective, just even if it's not in the research that you're seeing the world today with social media and the internet, it being higher than it's ever been before? Or is that something that just it's a consistent thing that's been around and we're just seeing it more often now because we have access? Uh, I don't know, uh, but I would I would guess that it's 
it, it would it would be intensified if you just think so. So here's I mean, we know a lot about social comparison. We know that basically social comparison, um, there there's some virtues in it and that you can become a little bit better by sort of benchmarking yourself against others. But there are a lot of downsides to it, mm-hmm. particularly if you're comparing people based on appearance, based you're comparing yourself with based on appearance, based on material possessions, based on um, the facade. Uh, that's usually pretty devastating. It's, it's, um, it's, it's all empty calories and it's also it's, it's something that you it's something that you can never, you can never win. And so in the old days, I mean, we had this thing in a, you know, almost uh, 80 years ago about keeping up with the Joneses. So what yeah. you had is you had, okay, who are the people on my block who I'm going to compare myself to? Now you can compare yourself to basically everybody Anyone. on the planet and you're always going to come up short. Oh, and I love that. Um, the last couple of questions. Uh, I want to combine a question I have from power of regret and when, if that's okay. Okay. Right. You talk about and when uh, this idea of sticking to a task too long and that we lose sight of the goal. So the question I have to combine regret and the idea of timing of being successful, is there a perfect time to stick and do a task? And is there a healthy time period for regret that we feel that sense? Is is there some research in there or perspective on, yeah, live in that, feel it. Okay. Now move forward. I don't know. Um, I mean, I think it's, I think it is, um, the temporal aspect of regret is interesting because like there, there is, okay, so let's think about you make a mistake in, in your life and I mean, like, I, okay, let's, let's, let's say you and I are talking in the month of, of March. So let me, let me take the month of February, right? I'm sh- sure there were gazillions of mistakes I made in February, most of which I don't remember. <laughs> All right. And so those aren't, those aren't, those aren't really, those aren't, those, those aren't regrets, but there could be things that I, there could be mistakes or things that I screwed up in February that are going to bother me the next month and next year and five years from now, right? Those are very important signals. And so when you look at the duration of something, you know, if something sticks around for five years or 10 years, it's telling you something. It's a, it's a very, very, very strong and powerful signal. Um, so, so in that case, if something that sticks around for a long time as a regret, you got to pay attention to it. Uh, you, you gotta, you gotta pay attention to it. Now, it, um, whether you take, whether you, I don't, I don't think you necessarily let go of that, but what, of a, of a regret, but what you do is you transmute it, you turn it into something else. And so you do that, you try to turn it into instruction for doing better in the future. And, you know, the way you do that is you treat yourself with greater compassion by, you know, treat yourself with kindness rather than contempt. You disclose it to make sense of it, to convert that blobby negative emotion into concrete words. And then you, you take a step back and extract a lesson from it. And so I think that that um, so uh, I'm not sure I, I don't fully endorse the idea of letting go of a regret. Of course not. Because I think what you I think what you want to do is you want to convert it. You want to. Yeah transmute it into something else yeah and i'm forgetting and the, the thing is and the thing is, that, and the, thing is the, the regrets that don't matter take care of themselves hmm. okay so again if I, I if i have mistakes that i made last year or two years ago and i don't remember them they're not regrets you know what, what it announces itself as a re, regret is something that lingers and when it lingers it's telling you something hmm. no, and i love that perspective because i think it's so important because um um, something I do in my, my therapy practice, if someone comes to therapy and they're talking about something, I'm like, sorry, that was so on a tangent or that wasn't what we're working on. And I say, but it must have been important because you said it. 
So if it's there consistently coming through and you're, you're hearing it, you're feeling it, that tells you something. Um, again, to combine the two books um, and uh, the idea of the habits that are really important to be productive and when, are there some key habits that really someone can take away from this lesson, from this, from this uh, interview that are super important to start practicing or getting involved in their life a lot more? Well, I mean, I think it's, um, I, I think there, 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 there are two. One of them is when you experience a backward looking regret is to just quickly go through this process of, you know, I like to call it inward, outward, forward. So inward, treat yourself with kindness rather than contempt. Reframe how you think about it. The way we talk to ourselves, you know, this as a therapist, the way people talk to themselves silently is ridiculous and cruel and vicious. Don't do that. Uh, instead, treat yourself with kindness rather than contempt. I think there is something to be said as a habit for revealing our regrets uh, to other people uh, or even just writing about them. I mean, if you write about your regret for 15 minutes a day for three days, that is a great solution. And then systematically try to draw a lesson from it by asking yourself, um, uh, what would you tell your best friend to do here by talking to yourself in the third person, any kind of self-distancing technique. So I love that. Reframe it. Outward, outward, draw, outward, um, disclose it and mm-hmm. write about it, talk about it, and then forward, um, take a step back and draw and draw a lesson from it. I remember when you when you were when I was reading the book and you spoke about um, the third person and you compared Elmo um, and uh, I forgot the other person you compared it to it. Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar. I my my daughter's almost three, so we're we're a big Elmo. I couldn't stop laughing because it's so true. How sometimes I sit there and listen to Sesame Street and I'm like, what is wrong with him? But at the same time, he's so. J- <laughs> Like Elmo, oh, Elmo likes this, right? It's just so funny. Yeah. Elmo is a genius. He is, right? Elmo uh, is a genius. Yeah. <laughs> um, just the last few questions. Um, when it comes down to um, the the practical things, you talked about revealing. Uh, to me, when I see someone, and I think this is an unhealthy thing that people do, where they reveal all their regrets online, they'll write like a, oh. a Facebook post or a social media post. Is there a place where revealing is, is unhealthy? Like at what point is it revealing to self? Is it mean like writing in your journal? What's the practical sense of revealing that someone can take versus putting it into the, the world and saying, woe is me. I'm so bad, blah, blah, It's going to, it's a great point. It's going to, it's going to vary from person to person. So, um, so it also depends. It's also depends in part on your intent. So if, if it, you know, if you're post if you're posting it on, if you're posting it on social media, with your name on it and you're doing it at length, it seems to me that you're doing it not as a sense making effort, but as a sympathy generating effort. Attention. Yeah. That is. Yeah. Yeah. Attention seeking, probably more attention seeking than sympathy generating, but it seems a little bit performative in that way. And that, and that the intent behind it is to have people tell you, Oh, I'm thinking about you. Oh, you know, I'm, I'm so bad. I'm sorry. You have to go through that. Um, if you write it for yourself, it's pure sense making. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I think there's also I think talking about it with one other person reduces a lot of that performative aspect of it. And so and what I find is that and I found this in my interviews. You know, it's not going to surprise you, given your profession. But what I what I found in my interviews was that um, when people started talking about these regrets, they started doing things about them that they had never done before, which yeah. is sort of as a writer is kind of annoying because I just want your story and don't change the story on me by behaving differently once we're done talking, except over and over again, people did behave differently once we got done talking because 
the 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 convert and it was this was not like you know we weren't broadcasting this conversation. It was just me and somebody else I was interviewing. But the fact that the the, the conversation allowed people to make to make to make sense of it. So I'm not a huge fan about posting all. I mean, to put it mildly, posting all your regrets on social media. You don't have to put um, mildly. I am, okay. I am a bigger. I am a bigger fan. I am a bigger fan of you know disclo- of disclosing regrets one on one to other people who care about you and you care about. I think that's extremely healthy. You know, and I, and I loved your whole your whole book, and, and it really I could I couldn't put it down. Maybe I'm up at crazy hours because I have a newborn, so I was reading it. All, um, uh, it took me like a day or two just to, to really fly through it. Um, a question I had just for you from an author perspective. Um, this might be a hard question, like who's your favorite child? But do you have a favorite book that you've written? Like out of the seven books, is something that the, that the, your passion or the research has been so unbelievable? Or are they all just so fun? Or it might not be fun. Um, they are. They are. They are all inadequate in their own ways. <laughs> and and uh, how is that? How is it the the change been when you wrote your first books compared to now? Is the process different for you, uh, or it's uh, is it easier, harder? Just they are they all their own challenge. Uh, I think it's the latter. The last one. It's it's all their own challenge. Uh, you would think it would get easier, and you would be wrong. Uh, it, it gets harder for different. It, it, it becomes harder for different reasons. So let me tell you what. Let me tell you what I what it, like. On my first book, I had a hard time doing it. I had a, uh, the, the the big challenge was the length, in that I had you know I had written articles and other kind of shorter form things, but to write at whatever that book was, that first book was probably sixty five thousand, seventy thousand words, seventy five thousand words. Um, I didn't know where I was, so I would be writing like like if I'm writing a four thousand word article. I know where I am in the process, whereas, but, but I had no, I was lost in sort of making sense of a 65,000, 75,000 word piece. I was like, okay, what is like, where am I here? So that was, that was hard. Uh, that you figure out pretty easily. Mm-hmm. Um, but what happens is, is the more you do it and the more you read, the more you write, the more you create stuff, the more you realize what sucks and what doesn't. And so when you're more aware of what sucks, it becomes harder. I know you quoted uh, Jonathan Haidt and Neff um, uh, in the Compassion. Neff, yeah, yeah uh, unbelievable work. Are there other authors or books that you would suggest for people other than your own, of course, and, and people listening? I'm going to be uh, sending someone a free copy of, of the book, The Power of the Regret. Um, authors that you think are really impactful in the day and age that we're in today. Uh, oh, so many. I mean, too many, too many to, too many to to to, to mention. I mean, you mentioned. Um, you mentioned John Haidt and then um, Kristen Neff. Those are I mentioned both, as you say. I mentioned both of those in this book. Um, I think that Carol Dweck's stuff on mindset is important. I think Angela Duckworth's stuff on grit is incredibly important. Um, uh, Cialdini on selling and on uh, on influence. Um, Katie Milkman's book, How to Change on mm. on Behavior Changes, is, is is real. There's there's there are a lot of real. There's a lot of really 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 good stuff out there. Do you guys and have so like a secret best, WhatsApp group? You know that you all like talk about each other's books. <laughs> the um, the no the the best. Uh, but the, my best advice is uh, is for is actually to read widely. I think that's the key. Um, I don't think that one should take any particular book as the you know, as the gospel and, yeah. and like, I'm going to, okay, I just, I just read mindset and therefore I'm going to treat, you know, I think what you want to do is you want to have a, you want to have a balanced diet of all these kinds of things. And so rather than follow one person or, or two people, you want to draw on them 
and think about what makes sense to you. Think about what doesn't make sense to you. Think about what's relevant to you and then integrate that into your own perspective. Amazing. And just to wrap up, last question I have for anyone who hasn't listened to anything you, we just said uh, for the past, I don't know, 40 minutes or so and hasn't read your book, what would be like one or two takeaways on the idea of regret that you think someone should take away from this uh, interview? Um, don't ignore your regrets. Don't wallow in your regrets. Confront them because when you do, it's going to give you a greater clarification on what you value and instruction on how to do better. Thank you so much. I, I really just want to say on the show, I really appreciate all your work. Your writing is unbelievable. And just showing up on, on the podcast uh, and saying yes uh, is, is a huge honor. I'm so and, glad to do it. I'm so and, glad to be on the Dude Therapist. And now you're part of the Dude Therapist family, whether you like it or not. So uh, welcome. Um, and uh, I really wish I'll, you all I'll the best of luck. The, I'll see you at the next family reunion. Sounds good. Okay. All the yeah. best to you. And thank you so much for everything. What a pleasure. Thanks. Thank you so much to listening to this week's episode of The Dude Therapist. And it only is happening because of you, the listeners, tuning in every week, even twice a week, to this show all about mental health, relationships, and wellness topics. And really, let's be honest, everything in between. And I'm so excited to show up every time and having great guests. So thank you. And if you have any questions, concerns, ideas, collaborations, email me at thedudetherapist at gmail.com. Follow me on Instagram at thedudetherapist. Let me know what you're thinking. Let me know your ideas. I can't wait to hear from you. And if you can go along, subscribe, rate, review on all the streaming sites that you're listening on. I truly appreciate it because that's what makes this thing happen. So thanks for tuning in this week. And see you next time on the Dude Therapist Podcast, because we've got more guests and more great content coming your way.